welcome to this episode of the Parlour Seasonal Salons podcast, a series of convivial, candid, intergenerational conversations about life and work in and around architecture and the built environment. These sessions are recorded live at much-loved events around Australia, and we are delighted to share these generous, open conversations with you. Our conversationalists for this episode are Brisbane architects Karen Onyebene and Libby Barpe. Karen is a director of Co and Co Architecture and Libby is an associate at JDA Co. They share their enjoyment working on the social environmental aspects of projects and discuss the level of responsibility required as an architect to do this effectively. Both provide rich networking advice articulating the importance of enjoying what you do and who you do it with. This salon was recorded live on Younger Turbo Country at Cox Architecture's Brisbane office in autumn 2021. Organised by Emma Healy, we hope you enjoy the conversation. From my old practice, started sort of moving across and giving me more work and it went from there. But yes, it's hard and it is hard. <laughs> but you have to love it, otherwise don't do it. Okay. <laughs> Why did you get into architecture, Libby? Growing up, I didn't always know that I wanted to be an architect. I was always very creatively inclined and my mother was an artist, a sculptor, so um, she just suggested out of the blue one day, like, what, what do you think of architecture? And I started university, I decided to do it and I started university, but I actually just really fell in love with it while I was doing it, especially towards the end. I hung out, to, I sort of waited till the end and I really then really decided, yeah, this is definitely what I want to do. As, a, as the boss, how do you balance the work life and private life? I try and not, well, I don't. I don't work Saturdays and Sundays. I'm very strict about that. Uh, I do work long hours during the week and I strongly encourage my staff not to do the same, <laughs> which generally we don't. I do try and manage our deadlines and things, but, yeah, it, I am very disciplined about weekends. That is my time. What makes you get up every day? You've got, well, for starters, tell us a little bit about the practice that you work in because you're doing okay. some, Emma mentioned you're doing some really interesting work in front resilience. Does yeah. that make you get up every day? Yeah, I'm really, really lucky to be able to work at um, my practice, JDA Co. So we're, very, we're a small practice of about seven people. We do a bit of everything. So we do private residential. Um, we also do a lot of work in heritage. Um, we've done cinemas in the past. We're currently refurbishing the Princess Theatre to become, um, that will be sort of done by the, the guys who did the Tivoli. Um, and more recently, in the last couple of years, um, we've been very heavily involved in climate change adaptation work. That kind of stemmed from after the January 2011 floods, my boss James was on the ground in the recovery effort and he then did a lot of pro bono work around um, and, and research into flood resilient design. Since then, we've done a lot of work. He's done a lot of private practice work in flood, making houses more flood resilient, and that led to us um, getting this job with Business City Council. And the Flood Resilient Homes Program is a program that's funded by council that basically, um, for Brisbane's most flood-affected um, homes, provides up to $50,000 worth of work to be done to make their houses more flood resilient. So it's not sexy architectural work, but it's really helping people who would never have ever met with an architect. Yeah, we've done over 100 properties now. So a lot of the practice work is sort of around the flood resilient stuff. Which is, it's got a, that's got a really interesting social aspect to it. Yeah. Is that what gets you up every day? Yes. <laughs> to answer the question, yes. That's what gets me up every day. Um, I would ask the same question to you. Yeah. 
But do you ever do you ever see yourself going back into a different practice that does more higher end design? Or because I like I think for you to say that it's not you know high end architectural work, you yeah. are actually making more of a difference to people's lives than someone's fancy house. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I can definitely say it's very rewarding to help people, and they're very grateful for it. Um, I've had very interesting experiences in the past, you know, with private clients, and you you sort of get a whole different mix of personalities, and that can be very sort of difficult to manage. Um, in terms of whether I'd ever go back to it, um, maybe one day in the future. I'm just currently really enjoying what I'm doing now, and I think that'll be really hard. Actually, I love um, actually working with council is. Real, much easier than I would have ever imagined. Yeah, they're great to have as as bosses. <laughs> yeah, it's funny with the private client thing. I mm. have a little test. Well, I have quite an extensive test, which I'm not going to share all of. But one of the things is if I tell clients that we do social and affordable housing, and they've come to us for a three million dollar house, and they give me that strange, oh look, we don't usually take the job on because I think well. That's what we do, and and because of that, we will be budget conscious of your, on your project, and we will pick materials that are considered and resilient. And so, if you don't like it, then you you are actually not the client for us. So, as much as I love I love doing high end stuff, mm. I do what gets me out of bed every day is the social and affordable work, which is not glamorous at all. <laughs> I'm at a point in my career where I'm starting to get more involved in the business development side of working in a in a practice. I think because I work in a small practice, I think you do have to take on a lot of those things earlier on. Yeah, so bringing work, mm -hmm. making connections. I I find myself sometimes getting nervous, you know, because a lot of a big part of it is networking. What would be your advice in that regard? Coming from big practice, that I used to find that incredibly daunting. So I was an associate and I used to say exactly the same thing. I, I look like I'm 12 and I don't want to put <laughs> myself out there and randomly ask people, you know, do you need an architect? Mm. And at the time, our practice manager said to me, you are doing business development. And I said, well, what do you mean? And I said, you, you bring in more repeat clients than anyone else in the office. So I think everyone's assumption is that business development is putting yourself out there and it's not. It's making your client counsel or the homeowners who's then going to say, I met Libby through this program and she was amazing and you should talk to her if you want to do a bigger reno. That you will, you will just by nature of being understanding and approachable develop business for your company. Oh, that's really good advice. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you choose to live in Brisbane? Brisbane, I think, has been a city that's been so exciting. So I moved here uh, when I was in high school in 1992 and there was no restaurants open on a Monday night and you couldn't get a decent coffee and I really missed Wollongong, which is where I grew up, uh, and I moved to Redcliffe to make it even more like Wollongong. <laughs> um, but since then, it's grown up. It's like the, like the grown-up version of what it was, but it's kept that small town nature, approachable, fun, mm -hmm. but design has advanced a lot. And, you know, one might argue that sometimes you know, Sydney and Melbourne probably are more advanced in design conversation and language than we are, but it's our job to change that. And I think that has changed a lot in the last 10 years. What, why, what about you, Libby? Did you, <laughs> why, did you choose, did you grow up in Brisbane originally? Uh, actually, I was born in Sydney, uh, moved to Brisbane when I was young, but I decided to stay in Brisbane. I just really love Brisbane architecture. 
And I actually prefer it over Sydney, Melbourne <laughs> architecture sometimes. I think it's a perfect blend of, you know, climate responsive design with and respecting traditional vernacular. So that's kind of why I tend to, I, I do really love living in Brisbane. It is that sort of small village feel, but that's why I choose to stay as well. Do you ever see yourself living anywhere else? I think the older I get, it's getting harder to <laughs> make that decision. I think when I was younger, I had aspirations. Yeah. Maybe in the future one day I will. If I could choose a place, maybe Tokyo, but that's very yeah. daunting. Yeah. But yeah, it's just funny. The older I get, the more I realise, well, I think, why would I put myself through that? Yeah. I could visit there, see the nice yes. buildings, yeah. but I work at such a lovely practice and I'm really, just really happy where I am. So, um, yeah, pretty content for now. Actually, just before we were chatting about practice and, and working in the practice that you do and the people that you love, do you think that's as important or more important than the work that you do? In a lot of ways, yes, mm-hmm. because you're spending so many hours of your day with these people. If someone's the best at 3D modelling or detailing, may may not mean that you're always going to get the best outcome if you don't get along with those people on a personal level. Um, so I definitely think personality for me is a really, really um, important um, factor for enjoying what I do. You did your thesis on architecture and homelessness. Um, what sparked your interest in this area? When I was in fourth year at QUT, I went and did a year exchange in Milan mm-hmm. at Polytechnico, and I used to catch this loop bus around the city to get to uni every day and every day there would be refugees that would get on the bus. This was in 2000. They'd get on the bus and they'd often sleep just on the loop bus all night. And if they did have somewhere to live, it was underneath the overpass of the main freeway. That Milan's like a concentric circle type city model. And so people would sleep. They'd build the cardboard shantytown cities underneath and the police would come through and destroy them quite often, like every month or two. And then they'd just go back and rebuild them. And there was this one particular girl I used to stand on the corner near my bus stop and she was so young and she was homeless and I thought, you know, what has brought you to this? She was a refugee, it was quite obvious, but you've chosen to come to a country that's not really welcoming you because you have nowhere to live but it's obviously safer than where you were. And so that's really what sparked my interest in how can we how can we help people? And it's not, the answer's not always giving them a home. It's giving them the support services or somewhere where they, if they choose to sleep rough, somewhere that they can shower. So Orange Laundry did an amazing thing when they set up in Brisbane, just giving people shower and washing machine facilities. And so like since so 2001, when I got back to Brisbane, I just, I went crazy on it. I just really wanted to like understand a bit more about the situation in Brisbane, which was at the time nowhere near as bad as it was in Europe and probably to be fair, still isn't. But it was really important to me because it's not fair that just architecture and housing is not for just people that can afford to pay an architect. It's for governments to actually, you know, lead the way in design and providing housing. So, yeah, sorry, that was a very long answer. Did you did you do a thesis when you went through uni? No, it was a master's degree. Oh, that's two years, and you don't um, have to do a thesis. Thesis, okay. yeah, we just finished the course. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sorry, that just goes to show how long ago I finished uni. Do you have any advice for your younger self or people that are starting to study architecture now? What, what mm-hmm. would you do differently? 
Well, if I was to study architecture again, I'd definitely learn more about the, just construction in general. Uh, I think in architecture, it's very focused on design, but then literally on my first day of work, I worked um, at a residential firm and it was just me and my boss. And it was really sort of, when you're working on houses, you have to really learn very quickly how things come together yes. <laughs> because there's no room for, for, air, oh, for, there's just so much detail that goes into it. You forget um, you're everything. You're the uh, electrical engineer, the mechanical contractor. Yeah. 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 Right. yeah. <laughs> I think I was a bit dumbfounded just, you know, I was going from very, very conceptual things from university to just straight up, um, this is how the roof goes onto the wall. Um, and I just wish I just took the time to do a lot, a lot of sort of self-research on that before I started. I think that would have definitely prepared me a bit better. Mm -hmm. I still don't think that you could have really done more research because uni's supposed to teach you tech, tech and science and how to put things together, but until you actually start drawing it, yeah. you have no idea. Yeah, I mean, it's tech, and, it's tech but, like, you know, high-rise buildings. They're just so sort of sort of out of scale to what you might actually do in, in, a, in an actual practice. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Was that your first job? In architecture? Yeah. What about your first, what's the biggest lesson that you took away from that? Because I was fortunate enough that my boss was a, was also a chippy. He used to be a chippy before he was okay. an architect. I just learned so much from that yeah. because the amount of times you would be on site and they'd just be literally drawing details on the walls about how things came together really just opened my eyes and just taught me so much about um, how, it, yeah, how it all works together, which, yeah, I had... I hadn't developed up to that point. Yeah, so I'm definitely, it was hard because it was just me and him and I was literally on my first day of work given a simple works contract for like, read this, <laughs> you're now leading this project. And I just graduated from university and just had no idea. But I had to learn very quickly and it was really hard. But I'm really glad that I got through that because now I just feel so much more confident mm -hmm. moving forward with other, with other projects. Mm -hmm. um, if you weren't an architect, what would you be? Uh, this is... This is a hard one because I've actually really not thought about it very much. <laughs> um, and I was just trying to think of an answer um, in the last sort of 30 minutes or so. I don't know. I I think in a dreamland where, you know, getting a job wouldn't matter, I would probably would love to study art history. Mm -hmm. um, not sure. I mean, I've, you know, that could lead to many jobs, but... I wouldn't even know where to begin in terms of finding a job in that field, but I've always been interested in art and think, yeah, I would just love to study the art history. Mm -hmm. What about you? I'd love to be a florist. <laughs> we have a little, our office is on the Trade Terrace, and when we moved there, we all used to joke that if architecture turns bad, we'll open a florist, high tea parlour, coffee shop, and we've got the tenancy sorted. So we, on hard days, we do still sometimes joke about that in the office. <laughs> How do you think architecture creates social and environmental impact? Social impact is easy. It is about making people, people's well-being and mental health, making an improvement to that. Environmental, I think we talk a lot about sustainability and using recyclable materials and low energy usage, but no one ever questions the average size of an Australian house as what sort of an impact that has on our environment and the fact that uh, urban sprawl is a big problem in Australia because everyone wants their five-bedroom, three-bathroom air-conditioned house. 
So I think architects can make the biggest difference in that space. And it's challenging because when you look at it, 5% of housing in Australia is architect design. 95% is delivered by project home architect, project home builders. So that, that's hard. Um, but how do you think it can make a difference? Like so a bigger social impact, I suppose. Definitely, we, I think there is a level of responsibility that we all have as architects to make sure that we're designing um, as best we can for um, social and environmental change. I, it's definitely hard because in the case of our firm, we had to do a lot of pro bono work um, in that field to really sort of push the agenda. You know, people aren't offering you this kind of work for, for nothing. And, but that's, that's really hard to, to do long term. And you need to have, um, you need to be really confident in doing that. Because what, I mean, I imagine what would normally happen is you get sort of, you start in working, but, um, if, unless the, the company you work for doesn't have the, the motivation to have that agenda, I think it's really hard to mm. sort of speak up mm. and be more forward with that with your clients as well, like telling them up front, this is how we're doing it. Yeah, how have you how have you found that with with your clients? Pro bono side or yeah, the pro bono yeah. side. Yeah, we do. I suppose because we still do high end architectural work, we kind of offset some of that fee to pay for our pro bono work. Um, so I sort of joke I never really look at the projects that are in red because it's what we get out of them at the end that excites me. Um, and we're very lucky to have some clients that pay really good fees on projects. Um, but I, yeah, it's hard if that. You have to have that balance of both, I think, and yeah, to run a business viably, you can't just constantly do pro bono work. I think we're also very lucky because a lot of the work we do do is for um, not-for-profits in government, and you'd be very surprised uh, how much they respect fees. I think there's this idea that if it's a not-for-profit or a small school that they're not going to pay, but they do because they know that they're paying for a good service. Whereas conversely, in my previous practice, we used to do quite a lot of developer housing and a lot of those clients would just squish the fee to nothing because it makes more money in their bottom line. And I think with, as a practice, we don't do any developer work. Just, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. And, and I do that because I think, well, I've got the skills and knowledge of housing that I'd rather use for good instead of evil. That sounds bad, but <laughs> I say it all the time in the office. But if you could change one thing, this is a very random question, if you could change one thing about how we work as architects, what would that be? Well, the first thing that sort of came to mind was we often undersell yes. ourselves. Yes. And we're also, I think there's a bit of caution there with trying to yeah, sell yourself as an architect yeah. and ask, really ask for the fee that you want. Mm -hmm. um, we always go over time. <laughs> we always spend more hours on a project than, than not. Yes. If I could change one thing, I suppose it would be our mindset yeah. on, on that aspect. Yeah. Um, and, and also I think it's kind of two ways because you might often come up against that, oh, that's really expensive for what that is. And I just, it's a perception change on both, on both sides of that. Mm -hmm. Or, yeah, something like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. What about you? I'd say exactly the same. It's a good answer. I think we, we do, university teaches us to pull all-nighters all the time and that nothing is ever good enough and we take that into practice. And it's interesting that we do that because we are our biggest critics and then clients are happy with what you've done and we think, oh, but we, are we happy? No, let's keep working and spend more money on it. And sometimes I think it is teaching people the value. Mm -hmm. And rather than just people cutting fees all the time, 
teaching clients to choose their service a little bit better. Like, you know, just don't don't say you have to engage us all the way to the end of construction because if you're actually making the biggest difference in providing a concept or a particular stage of a project, it's much more valuable that they then spend a decent fee on that rather than, you know, a cheap fee to provide a full service. So you work with both government um, agencies and private residential. Do you, do you have a preference for um, what kind of clients you like and how do they compare? Preference is people that value design in the residential space. That is not someone that comes to us with a tiny budget and wants a six-bedroom, four-bathroom home. Government work is always challenging because the expectation is higher than the fee always and their decisions always fee-based. But at the same time, I think government work gives you the most impact in terms of the number of people that you're touching with your work. So I, I, I equal, I'd say. Like my f- absolute favourite clients are, we have one client that's a not-for-profit housing, community housing association, and like I'd happily just be their in-house architect without like, I think half the office would just, you know, would just set up inside their practice. And, <laughs> yeah, so that's what I love. But equally, like half our practice loves schools, which is interesting. And you go to a school and the energy of kids and teachers and it's fun. So, yeah, both. I'd say both. What about you? I've had a lot of um, your private clients can be very interesting sometimes. Um, you're dealing with you're dealing with emotions. You're dealing with personalities. You're dealing with you're doing couple therapy. You're doing a lot of things um, at the same time. And when I was working at when I was doing the private residential stuff, you're often doing many projects at the same time. And yes, that is quite overwhelming. I this is a nice break for me working for, for working for council. Um, but I do, I do the odd job now and then for private residential, but only with the clients. I guess I'm, we're lucky enough that we can choose what clients we work with, so, and they've all been very good so yeah. far. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is good to get to that point when you choose clients. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> it makes a massive difference. Do you see yourself um, moving away, more away from private residential at all, or are you happy just to keep it in the same sort of similar ratio you've got at the moment? I think um, we are getting much pickier with our private res, and that is absolutely not to do with budget. It's very much to do with the personality I said earlier about, you know, do they do they like what we do as a practice and our philosophy? Um, like, we're doing renovations of five bathrooms in a very beautiful house at the moment, so no jobs are too small. But I don't. I also don't see us stopping doing private res ever. I think um, we'll do less of it. Like, given the choice, we wouldn't do much. And at the moment, I think we've got three houses, maybe four in the office of 20-odd projects that we've got. So, yeah, it's the balance has dropped. I definitely knew in that first year when all I did was private res that I did not want to do private res full-time. <laughs> what is your favourite project that you've ever done mm-hmm. and why? It was a heritage uh, adaptive reuse of a, an old wharf shed that was built in 1911. This was in my previous practice. And it was converted into a cruise liner terminal in Cairns. And it was the only project I've ever done where every single consultant on that project contributed 150%. Everyone and everyone, every discipline was awarded landscape, electrical, lighting, signage, everyone. And it was the most amazing project. We bled money like you wouldn't believe, (laughs) which even then the practice still was excited because it was such an amazing project. And, um, it was interesting because the building that was built in 1911, 
been, like, technically it shouldn't have been standing. It went through numerous cyclones in Cairns and the timber was all rated at F4. Mm-hmm. So it's not possible, but it was still there and we had to upgrade everything with steel and concrete and it was amazing. It went for, I think, nearly three years that we were on that job and, uh, yeah, it will always be my favourite. What about you? I think at the moment definitely the Flood Wesley Homes Program has been my favourite project so far and hope in the future I can work on a project like you like you have um, where everything just sort of comes together perfectly with all the disciplines. That just sounds like such a dream come true. <laughs> it's, it's funny how I've said that that's my favourite project, but it's nothing to do with housing, social or affordable. But, it, it, yeah, it was that team of people that were passionate that just doesn't happen all the time. What, what is your dream project? Again, a random question. Or client. Like, I have a friend and we joke we'd love to design a house for Barack Obama. It's like... <laughs> I think actually my dream project would be doing my own home one day. Oh. Yes. And I'd be my favourite client. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. <laughs> my husband's also an architect, yeah, so there no. might be some conflict there. But, um, but I think that's definitely probably what I'm most looking forward to is when I do my own place one day, when, you know, I have the funds to do it and the, all the creative licence to do whatever exactly what I want and the exact style that I want without having to answer to anybody. Oh. But, but can I just say, as a person who's not married to an architect, he was my worst client ever. And as an architect, you will never be able to afford what you design for other clients. Just, just saying. I can dream. You asked me for what I dream. I did. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for our parlor seasonal salons. We hope you have enjoyed this conversation. For more information about our salons and our conversationalists for this session, you can head to our website, parlor.org.au.